and guests. Um, Christmas sermons are wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity to stop and reflect on the coming of Jesus, his first coming into the world. And I want us to begin by thinking about a story that we know, we all know well, and that is the story of Dr. Seuss and how the Grinch stole Christmas. <laughs> it's one of my favorite holiday stories, and you know the story well, I'm sure. You know the two main characters, so to speak, are the Who's, who live in Whoville, and the Grinch. And the Who's, they're a bit of a joyful bunch. And the Grinch is, well, not. He's not very joyful. He's grumpy. To quote the story, his soul is an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable. Would you want that on your tombstone? (laughs) The Grinch dreams of a way to spoil the joy of the Who's on Christmas morning. So on Christmas Eve... The Grinch steals every gift in Whoville. And his assumption is that their joy, that is the joy of the Who's, is wrapped up in what they'll be unwrapping the next morning. But much to his surprise, that wasn't the case. In fact, on Christmas Day, quote, every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped the Christmas joy from coming. It came. Somehow or another, it came just the same. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. But we're left there. The story never really elaborates on what the little bit more was that gave the Who's such joy in spite of the absence of presence on Christmas morning. But in our text this morning, we're going to unpack exactly what the little bit more is. 1 John chapter 1, 1-4 is not a classic Christmas text, although I think it ought to be. I hope you'll see why at the end of this sermon. It's all about the coming of Jesus, and it's written by one of Jesus' closest friends. I want us to see five truths about Christmas from this passage, and we'll take them one at a time. I hope to show us where they are in the text, where I'm getting them from, what they mean, and what difference they should make in all of our lives. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for the greatest of gifts as we sang about the gift of your son. And as Pastor Ted led us in prayer earlier, heaven can give no more. And we thank you that you gave the son whom you love, the the cherished son of your heart, You gave him up for us, those who didn't want him, those who thought they didn't need him, but who by your grace at this time of year are reminded of our great need for a Savior. And so this morning, my prayer, our prayer together is that you would help us to feel all over again our need for Jesus and that you would meet that need by enlivening and strengthening faith in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's number one. First observation. Christmas is about history. Christmas is about history. The theological term is incarnation. It's about 
the eternal Son of God being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born from the Virgin Mary. We see that John, the writer of this little letter and one of Jesus' closest friends, believes that the coming of Christ is historical. We see this in the first words of his letter where he writes, that which was from the beginning. Now, what does that phrase, from the beginning, mean? Well, it's not as clear in this text. In fact, from the beginning could mean any one of three things. Let me give them to you. It could mean the beginning of Jesus' ministry. From the beginning of when Jesus started preaching, healing, teaching. Is that what he means? Well, in John's gospel, the account of Jesus' life that he had written before this letter. This, this letter is written when John's around the age of 80. He's much older now. But when he was walking with Jesus, he was a much younger man. And he uses the phrase from the beginning many times in his gospel to describe the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John 6, 64 says Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. That is from the very onset of his ministry. John fifteen twenty seven, you have been with me, Jesus said, from the beginning. That is from the beginning of my ministry. John sixteen four. I do not say these things to you for from the beginning because I was with you. So ever since John met the disciples, or that is Jesus met the disciples, including John, this phrase from the beginning can refer to Jesus' ministry. Or it could refer to the beginning of these believers' Christian experience that he's writing to. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, same letter, if you'll look over at chapter 2, verse 7, John writes, Behold, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment, that which you had from the beginning. That is, that which you had from the very moment you heard the gospel and believed it. Or John, 1 John 2.24, again, John writing, using the same words. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. That is, what we told you at the beginning, remember that. When we first met you and told you about Jesus, remember that. Let it live within you, in your heart. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, which does it refer to? Does it refer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, or does it refer to the beginning of these believers' Christian experience? I think neither. I think, in fact, it refers to something else. It refers to the fact that the Son of God existed from all eternity. Let me give you three reasons why I think the phrase, from the beginning, refers to Jesus' eternal existence. That is, his eternal existence as the Son of God before being born into the world on Christmas morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. John writes, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Then in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now that statement is not a reference to either Jesus' ministry or these Christian believers' experience early on. Rather, it's a reference to the eternality of the Son. Also, in 1 John 3, 8, we get another glimpse of this eternal meaning of from the beginning. When John writes concerning the devil, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Genesis 3. So for this phrase, from the beginning, can in fact refer back in time much earlier to Jesus' ministry, much earlier than these believers' Christians' experience. But... There's another reason that I think this phrase from the beginning refers to 
the incarnation, that is the coming of the Son of God and being born as a human being. And that is verse 2, the, the verse that follows, verse 1, where John writes, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, listen to this, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now there's a reference to Christ's eternality. That he was with the Father before being born as a man. And if you take these two verses, they're basically contrasting this. The first expression in verse 1 is from the beginning. And the second expression in verse 2 is he was with the Father. And as we know, those of you who are familiar with John's gospel, this opening of 1 John is very, very similar to the opening of John. Where we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the incarnation is a significant event in history. It is the eternal Son of God being historically manifested in space and time on the earth. It's a historical reality. We see in verse 2 that the Son of God who lived with the Father in eternity was made manifest to us. That is, he appeared. He became a human. And who was made manifest? Well, Jesus is described in this passage in a couple of different ways. First of all, in verse 3 at the end, he's described as Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But you notice in verse 2, he's described as the eternal life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. He's also described at the end of verse 1 as the word of life. So this word of life, this eternal life, this Son of the Father became a man in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20 reads, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So there's a verse in the Bible that teaches very plainly that Jesus Christ is God. He is the true God and eternal life. The question, though, is why was he made manifest? We see here, we don't get a reason in 1 John 1 to 4. We get the explanation that that which was from the beginning was made manifest to us in time. That which was eternal with the Father became a man in Jesus Christ. We get that much, but we don't get the explanation. And so I did a little search. I did a search. Where does this word manifest show up anywhere else in 1 John? And there's only one of the place. And it's the place that explains why he was made manifest. Would you look with me? 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10. This is why Jesus came. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. In this, in this, the love of God 
was made manifest among us. So he's so first of all, his coming is motivated by love. His coming is motivated by the love of God. But how? That God sent, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The obvious implication is we are dead. You say, I breathe, but you're dead according to this passage. Because the son came that we might live. Implication being we are dead, spiritually dead, without the son of God coming to make us live. And the question is, how does he make us live? Next verse, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Get this this morning. Christmas is not about you loving God and God responding by giving a gift to you because you love him. It's not. Christmas is about the richest man in town going to the diamond store and buying the most expensive diamond to come home and bring to thieves. That's what Christmas is about. God looked down and says, he didn't say, oh, they love me so much. I will now give them the gift of my love. Because that's what Christmas is all about. You don't give gifts to people who hate your guts. But God does. God does. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son. Here it is. To be, big word, the propitiation for our sins. Two key words, propitiation and sins. This is why the son of God was ultimately manifest and why we've been singing a lot about the cross and all these cradle songs. Because the reason the Son of God was made manifest, the reason that the Son of God appeared in the world, was to be a propitiation for sins. That is, meaning, to be nailed to a cross and absorb in his body the wrath and judgment of God that sinners deserve for their sins. That's what it says. We have sinned against God by failing to do the things he's called us to do. By doing the things he's deliberately told us not to do. And as a result of that, we have inherited the righteous judgment of God upon our lives. Death. And Jesus comes to lift it. To remove it off of us by placing it on himself. As our substitute. Dying in our place for our sins. Living the life we should have lived. Dying the death we should have died. Rising from the dead. So that as we place our faith in him, our trust in him, we are reconciled to the Father. As Hark the Herald Angel saying says, God and sinners are reconciled. So, the Son of God existed in eternity. The Son of God was born as the God-man Jesus Christ. And he was born to die for our sins. And that is historical reality. That's what John says. So Christmas is about history. It's about what actually happened. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not Santa Claus. It's not the Grinch. It's reality, historical fact. 
He lived. He died. He was born. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or do you just think it's another sentimental, like, mall story? It's like playing in the malls, and it's part of the Christmas season and all that. Or is this real? Is it, did this happen? Well, this verse teaches that it did, in fact, happen, and it was historical fact. Well, how do we know it happened? I mean, really? It's a pretty old book here. And how do we know this actually happened? Well, second point, Christmas is about personal experience. Christmas is not just about history. It is. But it's also about personal experience. Notice the language in this text. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard. This this language runs right through this passage. We have heard, seen, looked, touched. Jesus. Christmas is about personal experience. Who's the we? Who's the we? We have heard. We have seen. We have looked upon. Well, it's clear. It's John who's writing this letter and the other apostles, those who lived and walked with Jesus for three years. And of those 12 men, perhaps no one was closer to Jesus than John was. In John 19, verses 26 and 27, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, we read that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John when he was dying. That says something about your relationship with that man. We get it in other spots, too. In, first John, in John 19 and 20, Jesus, John refers to himself over and over again in the Gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved. In John 13, during the Last Supper, John is des- described as reclining at table close to Jesus. No other apostles described that way. The bottom line is that John was extremely close to Jesus. He was like his best friend. So why is that so significant? Because... It is this man, this close friend of Jesus, who received the care of his mother at his death, who said, and is writing this, I heard his voice. I walked with him. I looked at him. I touched him. He wasn't just some ghost. He wasn't some figment of my imagination. He wasn't some story. He was a person. He lived. And I walked with him for years. I knew Jesus Christ personally, John said. I know him and his message. John is saying, I saw him in the flesh. I walked with him. I talked with him. So you can be confident, readers, that this Jesus that I'm getting ready to tell you about in this letter is the objective truth and revelation of God. I have seen the blessed life. I have walked with the Savior, and I am testifying to you that truth and life are found in Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying. But you know what? This personal experience of Jesus is not only reserved for the apostles. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter reminds us that, quote, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. It is possible to love and believe and be close to Jesus without ever seeing him face to face. It's possible. Peter wouldn't have wrote that if it's not possible. And every Christian in this room knows it's possible. So does that statement describe you this morning? Are you someone who doesn't just believe the historical reality of Jesus, but who is personally experiencing him as you walk with him by faith, that you find yourself in 1 Peter 1.8? Though I don't see him, I love him. And even though I don't see him now, I believe in him and rejoice in him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's experience. That's personal experience. Can you say with Peter, though I have not seen him, I love him? Can you say with Peter, though I have not seen him, I believe in him? I worship him. I entrust my life to him. I follow him. He is my Lord and my God. I prize him. I treasure him. I enjoy him. He is my all in all. Is that you? Here's the big question. Do you have personal experience and relationship with Jesus Christ? And does the Bible verify that that relationship is genuine? There's the key question. Do you say, yeah, I experienced Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Question, though. Does the Bible verify that that experience is genuine? What are the distinguishing marks of a relationship with Christ? First John's all about it. And I encourage you to read it if you're not familiar with it. It's all about what a genuine relationship with Jesus looks like. And we don't have time to go into that much. We're going to hit in some of it this morning, but not much. Let me ask it another way. Is this Christ... Merely a sentimental, distant story that's part of your life? Or is this Christ your life? That's the question. So Christmas is about history, and Christmas is about personal experience. Number three, Christmas is about proclamation. It's about proclamation. We see this at the beginning of, or in the middle of verse 2. It says, we have seen it and testified to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So this, this word, proclaim, shows up twice. And then we see the word testify in the middle of verse 2. So we've got two words. We've got something being testified about and something being proclaimed. Now what's the difference? To testify emphasizes the authority of experience. It's, I witnessed it. It's what we were saying about personal experience just a second ago. I have seen it, and I have heard it, and I have listened to Jesus, and now I'm telling you what he said. That's testifying. Proclaiming, though, has the authority of commission. That is, we as the apostles have been sent by Jesus to declare to you who he is and what he's done and what implications that has for our lives. So we get... Testifying, that is, I'm sharing my experience with you. And proclaiming, I'm telling you what he told me to say. And it's both. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about sharing our experience of Christ and proclaiming who he is and what he's done. 
John Stott helpfully summarizes the distinction. Let me read this quote. The experience is personal. The commission is derived. In order to testify, the apostles must have seen and heard Christ for themselves. In order to proclaim, they must have received a commission from him. Christ not only showed himself to disciples to qualify them as eyewitnesses, but he gave them an authoritative commission as apostles to preach the gospel. Our author writes that having heard, seen, and touched the Lord Jesus, he now testifies about him. Having received a commission, he proclaims the gospel with authority. For the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but a confident affirmation by those who experience, whose experience and commission have qualified them to make it. That's well said. Christmas, in other words, is about preaching. It's about heralding a message. When the angels arrived, they proclaimed. So Christmas is not first and foremost about family and friends, as wonderful as both of those things are. And Christmas is not first and foremost about food and gifts, as wonderful as those things are. It's not about eggnog, sleigh bells. Santa Claus, tinsel, jingle bells, trees, lights, decorations, or snow. It's about preaching. That's what it's about. It's about preaching a message. I'm convinced that one of the greatest needs in my efforts in personal evangelism are to experience Jesus and tell him why he means anything to me. If you get this, you will be a faithful evangelist. If you can both testify and proclaim, some of you are really good at testifying. You will share your heart about what Christ means to you and what he's done for you, and that is wonderful. Keep it up. Some of you are really good at proclaiming. You'll say, repent. Jesus died for our sins. Believe. That, that objective reality. You're good at the objective. So, so, some of us are too afraid to do either. We're neither subjective nor objective. And shame on us. We need to be both subjective and objective evangelists. Not just this time of year, but all year long. John gives us the most powerful evangelistic strategy in the world. Testify and proclaim. Not either or. Experience Jesus deeply, personally. Commune with him in the Bible, in the word, with the saints. Go out and tell people why you give a hill of beans about him. Don't tell him he died for their sins. Tell him what he did for your sins. Don't just tell them what they need to do. Tell them what you're doing. And why you do it. And why it matters. We live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Where people all around will just spit it out their mouth. Jesus Christ. His name. I believe in Him. What we need is subjective reality right here. Meeting your life. Seeing how it's making a difference. That's what we need. And I'm pleading with you, this year, go deep with him. And then share what he is doing with your brothers and sisters 
Open your life up. Let them see what he's done for you and make and what, what difference he's made. And tell them that. That has more power in it than we can imagine if it's real. So if we believe that Jesus Christ really lived and really died, and we have personally experienced his transforming grace by faith on an ongoing basis, we are called to the same ministry of proclamation. We are to take what we have seen, heard, known, and experienced and pass it on to, pass it on to them. But in doing that, we are not merely to pass it on to them as though it's just for us and not for you. That's the proclamation part coming in. This is not just my experience with Jesus, you take it or leave it. This is my experience with him, now his claims come on our lives. That's where the proclamation comes in. So testifying and proclaiming, two critical things that Christmas is all about. So believers, be reminded, Christmas is about your privilege to share Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. It should be reminding you of that. Not just that he came for you, but God sent him to send you and to send me. Number four, Christmas is about relationships. It's about relationships. Christmas is about history, personal experience, proclamation, and relationships. Verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, here's the reason, John is writing and his hopes for this letter and what he hopes it will do, what he's praying it will do in the hearts of the people who read it. So that you too, and this is John's desire for you and me this morning as well, so that we, you too, may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Christmas is about relationships, about fellowship. Fellowship, simply stated, is the joining together, the sharing of life for the purpose of a cause or a partnership. In this text, John says, believers, I want you to have fellowship with me. And us and all the apostles, and I want you to have fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So there's a, there's a vertical dimension to this relationship, and there's a horizontal dimension to this relationship. And in verse 3, John gives us both. He gives us the purpose of proclaiming this message. It's so that people would be joined to Christ and joined to each other in Christ. The goal of proclamation is not merely that people would pray a prayer or make a decision, but that they would believe the message, repent of their sin, establish relationship with God, and become part of a local body of believers with whom they can fellowship. And show that by being united with a local body of believers, they actually have the life of God living in them as well. That's how we know we have fellowship with God. So there's this upward dimension, fellowship with the Father and the Son. We get to have a relationship with God. Christmas is about a relationship with God. It's about God coming down to us so that we can come back to God. And Jesus removing that barrier that separated us between God the Father 
and us. So it's about restoring our relationship with God. It's also about the church. It's about fellowship among believers. It's about being meaningfully committed to a covenant community. And it's also about a new relationship with our sin. I just want you to skip down quickly to verse 7 of the same, 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 uh, same chapter. Actually, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, say, I say I'm a, I'm a Christian. I have fellowship with God. I have a relationship with God. While we walk, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Can I just stop right there and say this? That verse is saying to us, if you claim to have a relationship with God, and you have no relationship with the church whereby you are walking in the light being known, your sin is known, you don't have a relationship with God. There are huge implications for that verse. If we say we're walking in the light, we have fellowship with one another, there's the church, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this sharing of life together with unbelievers is a refusal to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light. And that fellowship with others verifies and gives evidence to our relationship with God and proves that the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from our sin. There are massive implications for that. Ligon Duncan puts it this way. So the purpose of proclamation was for the creation of a fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ in which we share life. We are mutually committed. We are mutually accountable. We believe the same truth. We're committed to the same mission. We're in love with the same Lord. We're trusting the same God. We're proclaiming the same gospel. That's what fellowship is. It's not chips and dip. Although it can include those things. So there are two extremes here that have to be avoided. One is to, be a, is to claim to be identified with Christ and not being identified with, with or by Christ's people. Meaning you're not meaningfully plugged in to a local church. The other extreme, though, is to be in some external sense joined to a local church, like have your name on a roll or come at Christmas and Easter without being savingly united to Jesus Christ personally. That's the two extremes to be avoided. What John wants for us is relationship. He wants relationship with Jesus and the Father, and then that giving rise to getting in relationship with other people who are in relationship with Jesus and the Father. That's what John envisions, and that's the church. So the goal of John's proclamation is vital relationship with God and vital relationship with the church. That's what he wants. So may I ask you lovingly, because we have a lot of visitors here, are you joined to Christ and a local church, or is it just Jesus and you? That's not a biblical category. It's not a biblical category. Which is why I said earlier, make sure you verify that your relationship with Jesus is what the Bible says it should be. Are there believers with whom you share your life, who know you, and by whom you're being held accountable? Are you part of a people where you're united with them in truth and mission? 
Are you in love with the same God and proclaiming the same message along with a group of people? And for most of us in that room, that is blessedly true. But I want to be faithful to you this morning. So because Christmas is all about relationships, it's all about vertical relationship with God and horizontal relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me wrap up. Finally, number five, Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about joy. Verse four, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John's writing from this posture. And he says, I'm writing to you so that our joy, your joy, all of our joy would be complete. Notice the order here. Historical events. Jesus came, lived, and died. Personal experience. We've heard, seen him, touched him. Proclamation. We testify and proclaim to you that we have fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And that brings joy. That brings joy. We're looking now for complete joy. True joy comes from shared life with Christians rooted in shared life in God. This is the life that is the life of joy. John is saying that fullness of joy is found in mutual fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who share life with the triune God by faith in Jesus Christ. So I hope that you can see this morning what the little bit more of Christmas is. In fact, it isn't a little bit more. It's everything. It's everything. We as Bible-believing, blood-bought, Holy Spirit-indwelt Christians have come to see that a little bit more is nothing less than relationship with God through Jesus Christ and relationship with each other in Christ. We've come to see that it's all about the gospel of Christ. God is offering his gift to us again this morning. But this gift is not located under a tree. It's located on a tree. God's greatest gift is not located under a tree. It's located on a tree. And that tree is the cross. So where are you this morning? I want everybody, I want no one in this room to leave not knowing where you are in this great story. Where are you right now? Let me give you some questions to help evaluate what stage you might be in. Number one, are you in the history stage? That is, you still don't know if this is really real. And you're still about, praise God. You're here, you're thinking, you're evaluating. Everybody this morning, I pray, would be convinced and know that they're in the history stage. That is, they have heard the message of who Jesus is and why he came and what he, what he did. That's history. And I believe it. It's not just a myth, not just a legend, historical fact. Believe it. There's stage one. Stage two, personal experience. Have you moved beyond just staring at the facts, knowing the gospel, understanding its message, and actually moved into personal vital relationship with Christ. Yourself. Giving him your sin. Receiving his righteousness. And walking with him day by day. Do you know him? Are you seeing him? Hearing him in his word? Touching him with the hands of faith? Experiencing him walking with him? That's the second stage. Are you there? Number three. Are you, pro- are you proclaiming? 
Are you testifying? Have you made it your life's goal to live for him? And every time he gives opportunity to testify and proclaim of who he is. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do with my life and all my other responsibilities. And my responsibilities of family and work and all the legitimate callings that God has given me. And all those callings, I'm a missionary. That's why I live. I live to testify and proclaim who he is and what he's done in my life and what the gospel message is. Are you there? Number four, relationships. Are you currently in relationship with God through Christ? And even as important, dealing openly and honestly with your sin in the community of the church. You have found the church in all of its remaining imperfection, in all of its remaining sin, to be the place where God manifests himself and his glory dwells. And there is no other place and no other people that you would rather be identified with than a local body of Christ church. And then finally, are you experiencing the joy of the Lord? And might I suggest that perhaps one of the reasons you're not is maybe one of those other things are missing. Maybe the proclamation is missing. Maybe the relationships are missing. Maybe the vital communion is missing. And Christmas is a great time to hear the gospel again. To know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we get fresh starts. We get fresh starts. We get fresh start with relationship with God. We get fresh start with relationships with others. We get fresh start by proclaiming the gospel to others. So I just ask you this this morning, where are you? And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I pray that you'll resolve that issue and that you'll get all the way from stages one to five and you'll resolve to live your life there. That's my prayer for you, is that you will make it past history and move into personal experience and proclamation and relationship and a life of joy. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. That's what Jesus died to win for you. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to reflect on your unchanging word that speaks to us, that challenges us. And we ask that you would draw near to each one of us and help this Christmas to be a season, not just of giving, but a season of receiving from you. Receiving fresh encouragement, fresh life, fresh doses of grace, fresh revelations of mercy, fresh enjoyment, fresh joy in the Lord. Fresh resolves, driven by faith and motivated by grace. We pray that you would do that for us and do that in us for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. In 149. 149.